Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark to wander around and try to find the right way on our own because we never could. We would continue in blindness, not even seeking for the truth. If it wasn't for you working in us through the Holy Spirit and through giving us the truth in Scripture, the living and enduring Word of God. We thank you for the opportunity to study it now together. We pray that you would help us to understand the truth as you desire for us to know it, that you would help us to make right application, and that you would be glorified in it as we do. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the providence of God, we are uh, studying 1 Corinthians in Sunday school and our morning service. And uh, we're in a little bit of a race now to see who gets done first. <laughs> um, I think I might beat Steve. It's going to be close. Um, but as I'm nearing the end, um, I've been flipping back through to remind myself of what some of the, the major themes have been throughout this book. And as we come back to them again in Sunday school, and one that I hope is obvious is the gospel. That is the, the umbrella that all of the rest of it comes under, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We start out there in the book of 1 Corinthians, and the reminder of that it is all grace there is nothing that you have done to make yourself at all pleasing to God that he would want you. It's all grace. We saw the, the message that Paul preached was Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he came to Corinth, that was the one thing that they needed to know. So, uh, above all else, we see that in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Gospel We've also seen a lot of teaching in here about unity in the body of Christ. Very important theme in 1 Corinthians. Unity in the body of Christ. Uh, there's been a, a fair amount about the use of our liberties in the body of Christ. There's been some about other issues of conduct when the body of Christ comes together to worship. There's been a few chapters dealing with spiritual gifts and how they should be understood and used. Then chapter 13, in the midst of all of that about spiritual gifts, about how agape love is to be the standard by which we do everything in life. Don't forget chapter 13. Go back to chapter 13 often. Very important chapter for how we live our daily life. It's all to be about love. And we got to the peak of the mountain, chapter 15. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Most important thing that has ever happened in creation. Now we saw in chapter 15 that so many things that that means for us. For our daily living, for our future, the hope that we have of resurrection and eternal life, 
So everything based on the fact of Jesus Christ being alive from the dead. Now, someone, after all of that that we have seen and coming from where we just were in chapter 15, someone could get the idea that chapter 16 is kind of pointless. How do we get from those most important things? The resurrection of Jesus Christ to offerings. We looked at that some last week. Hopefully you saw why that matters, why it's important. Then we move on this week in the next verses. Who cares about Paul's travel plans? What difference does that make to us? You know, those things can seem kind of petty in comparison. We've talked before about the sacrifices that people have made throughout history to preserve the scriptures. People who gave their lives so that we could read God's word in our language. Why chapter 16? Why has that been preserved for all of these years? As far as I know, Paul isn't making any plans to travel to Moral anytime soon. And we don't read that he's going to spend some time in Ephesus and go through Macedonia and spend a winter in Corinth and then make a trip through Kansas. So why does this matter to us? Well, if you look again in chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What does that look like in our practical, everyday living? Chapter 16 is an example of how that worked itself out in Paul's life, in his practical, everyday living. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. How do we do that? Well, like it or not, It takes money to live and to do some of the work of the Lord. One of the ways that that money is going to get where it needs to go is through offerings when the church meets. That's why verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16 are there. In the next verses, verses that at first glance may seem seem to be pretty unimportant, there are actually some very important, very practical and helpful principles about how we should go about doing the work of the Lord. So we begin in verse 5. And Paul says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. Okay, so we have here Paul's travel plans in order to do the work of the Lord. He knows that there's work that needs to be done. He believes that this is the best way to get that work done. Now, Clark, if you could go on to the next slide there in the PowerPoint. This is a little bit about what Paul's travels looked like. Now, the church in Corinth was having lots of problems. 
Now, Paul was in Ephesus, right around there. And he could have dropped everything he was doing there, went by ship right across the Aegean Sea, and arrived in Corinth. Could have got there fairly quickly to help them with all of the problems that they were having. You remember they wrote a letter to Paul, letting him know about some of the problems they were having. So he, he could have done that and gotten there pretty quickly. But Paul knew that there were some other people that he needed to see, places that he needed to go. So he made a plan to travel by land in a way that would take him up through several other cities to be able to see some some people that he had met before. This is his third missionary journey. If you follow those red lines, that's the way he, he went, made his way to Corinth. Some churches had been planted there. He could see them again, encourage them, share the gospel with some new people along the way. That was the way that he thought would be best to abound in the work of the Lord. Now, so far, verse 5, this all sounds pretty definite. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. But Paul knew that ultimately... He was not in control of his plans. You look at the next two verses. Verse 6, and perhaps, notice that word, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. He didn't know where we might go from there. He says, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope... He doesn't know. He says, I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So we go from verse 5, what sounds very certain, very definite, to verses 6 and 7, where it seems like pretty much everything is up in the air. Now, when it comes to traveling, verse 5 is where my, my wife likes to be at. Verses 6 and 7 are where I like to be. We'll see what happens along the way. Paul says there needs to be some of both. He knows what he would like to do. He's made a plan. But he has been around for long enough to know that plans don't always turn out the way they've been made. Have you ever experienced that? (laughs) Practically every day, right? We make our plans for the day, and how often do they turn out the way that you made them at the start? Probably almost never, unless you're a better planner than I am. So here's what Paul sees as ideal. This is what he would like to do. When he he writes this letter, it's probably early spring. Later on in the spring, he's going to leave Ephesus. He's going to travel through several other cities throughout the summer. He will get to Corinth next fall and spend the winter there. Then the following spring, they could help him on his way with some funds for his travels. You remember back in chapter 9, he reminded them of how when he first came to Corinth, he wouldn't accept any money from them. It's because he he knew them well enough that they would uh, consider that to be something that it wasn't. He wouldn't take any money from them. But now, established church, they should be mature enough 
that he could accept some money for some help to get to the next place he's going. Also, they could maybe provide him with some, some people to travel with. It was commonly done in the day. It wasn't safe to travel alone. He might be going somewhere a ways off. So they could provide some people to go with him, help him arrive safely wherever he's going next. Well, it turns out Paul's travels didn't all go exactly like he had planned. There is some evidence in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, that there were some people who were really bothered by that. Some people maybe thought Paul was a bit of a flake. Couldn't be depended on. He makes these plans. Where is he? He never showed up. Notice what Paul says in these verses, though. Here's my plan, but it's all a contingency. I don't know for sure if it's going to work out. He made his plans just like James said we should in chapter 4 of James, verses 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. You notice how, how far God's will goes, not just to the daily things, if we do this or not, but whether or not we're even alive tomorrow. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Paul made his plans. He knew what he wanted to do. But he made it very clear that he knew God may have different plans. God may change his plans. So he let him know what he wanted to do. But have it in mind that it may never happen. Um, this past week, some of you uh, received an email about some necessary changes regarding the mother-daughter banquet. Plans were made. And I know that plans were tried to be fixed inside, outside, upside, downside, every way it could be, and it didn't happen. And in that email, if you saw it, there was a quote from one of my favorite books, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, that said this. From our limited vantage point, our lives are marked by an endless series of contingencies. We frequently find ourselves, instead of acting as we planned, reacting to an unexpected turn of events. We make plans, but are often forced to change those plans. But there are no contingencies with God. Our unexpected forced change of plans is a part of his plan. God is never surprised, never caught off guard, never frustrated by unexpected developments. God does as he pleases. And that which pleases him is always for his glory and our good. How should we make our plans It's good to make plans. It's 
good to have a goal. But always keep in mind that God may change them. Always keep in mind that it's God who is ultimately in control. Now, how should we respond when plans don't turn out? That's maybe the more important question. How should we respond? How do we respond? You make plans, somebody else changes your plans for you. How do you respond to that? Do you get frustrated? Do you get annoyed? Do you get angry sometimes? How should we respond? Well, understand that God is in control. God is the one ultimately who makes the plans. And understand that God's plans are always better than ours. How do you respond that Sunday morning when you're finally going to make it to Sunday school on time and you're getting close to the tracks and the arms start coming down? Do you get angry? Do you get annoyed? Or do you understand that God is sovereign over that train? God's plan is what's going to happen. God's plans are better than your plans. God may plan for you to get up even a little earlier the next Sunday. (laughs) God is in control. The next couple of verses, verses 8 and 9, may help us to realize that the plans that we make sometimes may not have been the best plans anyway. We may need to make some adjustments on how we make our plans in what we see to be the ideal situations for us to do the Lord's work, to carry out those plans. We have looked in a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians about using spiritual gifts. And I've asked you a few times, I can ask you again, are you using them? Are you using your gifts? Are you serving? Are you ministering in some way? Everyone who is in Christ is to have a ministry of some kind, serving in some way. You've been entrusted with spiritual gifts to enable you, to help you to do that. Are you using your gifts? Or are you waiting for the ideal circumstances before you start? What is ideal? Are you waiting for the time to be right? Are you waiting for something to change? Are you waiting to get past this certain hurdle before you begin to serve, to have a ministry? What is ideal? Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Just give you a little time frame there. Basically, that's 50 days after Easter. So he's going to remain there till late spring or early summer in Ephesus. Why? For a wide door for effective service has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. 
And notice what he says about his serving there in Ephesus. A wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if you are doing the right work in the right way, with the right gift, in the right place, and at the right time, don't you expect that it should be easy? That it should go well? And if it's not easy, don't we assume that something is being done in the wrong way or with the wrong gifts or in the wrong place or at the wrong time? Don't we assume that if it's not easy? How many ministries do you suppose have come to an end because it got difficult? Or there was some opposition. How many ministries do you suppose haven't begun because it looked like it might be hard? Have you ever given up on serving in some way because things got complicated? Paul saw that in Ephesus there was a lot of ministry that needed to be done. And there were many adversaries. The adversaries that were there in Ephesus didn't mean that he should move on to somewhere easier. It actually meant the opposite. It meant that he needed to stay. He needed to be there longer to make sure that this area of service got accomplished and didn't get overthrown by those adversaries. It was hard, and that's why he needed to be there. Now, Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus. Back in chapter 15, verse 30, Paul said that he was in danger every hour. Verse 31 He said he died daily. Verse 32, he talks about fighting with wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, you would think if he had the chance to go somewhere else, he would have jumped at it. Even if it was Corinth where things weren't ideal there either. But maybe he at least would not have his life threatened every day. But he didn't go. Running away from ministry because of opposition is not the way to abound in the work of the Lord. So when we make our plans about how we're going to abound in the work of the Lord, the ministry that we're going to have to use our gifts, don't look for something that's going to be easy. That doesn't need to be one of the criteria. It doesn't need to be easy. Look for something that needs to be done that you can do and do it, no matter how hard it may be. Find something that needs done that you can do and do it. The late Pastor G. Campbell Morgan said that if you have no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. Why would that be? 
Is that true? Is there any truth to that? If there is no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. I think the reason for that being true would be that if there is no opposition, if everything is easy, you're apparently not being a threat to Satan and what he wants to accomplish. Because if you are a threat to what Satan and those who are his want to accomplish, they're going to oppose you. So to abound in the work of the Lord, we need to be willing to do hard things. Be ready to suffer. Be ready to face opposition. To abound in the work of the Lord. As we go on, verses 10 through 12, we see that to abound in the work of the Lord, we need to work in unity with God's people. Look at verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Now, Paul has told them he can't get there yet. He's got some other things he has to do. But maybe Timothy would be able to get there before Paul. And if he was able to come, he would be coming to do what? To help them. He would be coming to serve them, to minister the word of God in the same way that Paul would if he was able to be there. So Timothy might be able to come, but Paul says, if he does, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Think about that phrase. Timothy is able to come to serve you, to help you. See that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Isn't that a sad thing to have to tell a church? Timothy served alongside of Paul. That means that Timothy suffered with Paul. Many of the same places that he was at the same time that Paul was there. We know a lot about the suffering of Paul. Timothy suffered a lot of those same things. If there is any place in the world that you would think you should be able to go as a Christian who is doing the work of the Lord without need of being afraid, shouldn't it be the church? But we've seen in this letter to the church in Corinth that this was a very critical group. Very arrogant. We saw back in chapter 1 and chapter 3, some of them liked the planter pastor. Some of them preferred the waterer pastor. And they didn't go easy on whoever it was that was the wrong one for their liking. Some of them preferred Paul, the planter. Others thought Apollos, the waterer, was the real deal. It's a conflict between the two groups. Now, what about Timothy? When he came, you can be sure that they would be looking him up and down, trying to decide which one he would be. Would he be a planter or would he be a waterer? And if he was the wrong one, for whichever group, 
they chew him up and spit him out. Second Corinthians. We find that there were some in the church in Corinth who said about Paul that he's a big man in his letters. But in person, he's an unimpressive little wimp. And they didn't like his voice either. How junior high. You remember that from when you were in school? Isn't that some of the insults that went around? It's middle school, I guess, in this area. Some people never grow up. They were so opinionated. They thought so highly of themselves. And Timothy, compared to Paul, was maybe a little timid. And when you think about everything that Timothy went through along with Paul, compared to us, compared to me, Timothy was probably a lion. But compared to Paul, Timothy was maybe a little shy, a little timid. And he was pretty young. It was about ten years after this letter, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Don't let anyone look down on your youth. He said that ten years later. So where was Timothy now in this letter to Corinth? I read that that could be said of anyone up to about 40 years old. Be considered young, youth, which made me feel good. I've got eight months left. (laughs) After that, you decide if you despise me after that, but not until then. Timothy, probably in his 20s, a young man. Considering the way they treated the Apostle Paul, what do you think they might do to Timothy? Should never even be an issue in the church. This is something that should not have needed to be said. Let Timothy be able to be with you without reason to be afraid. We're on the same side. He's coming to serve, to help. Verse 11, so let no one despise him. Again, shouldn't even need to be said. He's coming to be a servant for you. Don't despise him. But send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. You notice the respect that Paul had for Timothy, that young man? He was useful to him. A servant alongside of him. But Paul says, treat him right while he's there. You've got 1 Corinthians now. Reread chapter 13. If you need to know how to treat Timothy. Love him. Help him on his way to get back to me to help me. If we're going to abound in the work of the Lord, we need to consider how we're treating our fellow workers. That was a negative example. Here's what not to do. Verse 12 is a positive example. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now. But he will come when he has opportunity. And you know what this was? Verse 12. This is a disagreement between Paul and Apollos. There are several things that we can learn from this disagreement. First of all, remember 
in the church in Corinth, they had made Paul and Apollos competitors. And from the evidence that we see here, I think Apollos had the, the bigger cheering section between the two of them. Now, Paul could have been jealous of Apollos, and he could have just tried to keep Apollos away, assign him somewhere else, so that Paul could go back there and on his own try to win them over, get more on his side. But Paul recognized that Apollos was an effective minister. He is someone who wanted to serve the Lord. There's things that he could do in Corinth. Paul wanted him to come. And it would be good for the Corinthians to see Paul and Apollos serving side by side to see that there's no, no rivalry between them. They weren't competitors serving on the same team. So we see in verse 12, Paul had a very strong opinion that Apollos should go to Corinth. Apollos had a very strong opinion that he shouldn't at that time. He'd come some other time. So we see here two leaders in the church with differing opinions. How would they handle it? Again, Paul could have been jealous. He could have pulled rank. He could have put his foot down, clenched his fists and turned red and said, now look here, Apollos, I am the apostle. You're going to do what I say. He could have put Apollos down to the Corinthians. Saying that bum, he's off in greener pastures. Living the easy life, not wanting to do the hard things. He doesn't do that. He doesn't put him down. Paul respected Apollos. He trusted him to do the right thing, and he left it at that. And remember, again, chapter 13, verse 7, one of the attributes of love, believes all things. Paul believed Apollos. He could assume the best about Apollos. This is Paul putting that into practice. There is a lot of grace a lot of freedom that is given and expected in these verses. Grace and freedom. Paul didn't assume that he knew God's will for Apollos more than Apollos did. Paul knew that, Paul, that Apollos knew his own circumstances and his reasons and motives of his own heart better than Paul did. Paul wasn't jealous. So he could make a suggestion and even have a strong opinion about it. Try to persuade Apollos graciously. But then it was right for Paul to give Apollos the freedom to do what he believed was right. This was not an issue of doctrine. If this was an issue of doctrine where Apollos wanted to teach something that was not true biblically Paul wouldn't have been okay with that this wasn't an area of doctrine this is an example of two mature Christians disagreeing about matters of opinion or conviction they both wanted to serve the Lord they both wanted to do the right thing but they didn't agree on exactly how and when and where that should happen 
Now, Apollos could say no to Paul without fear that he would have to face the wrath of Paul. They both had strong opinions about this. Apollos said, no, Paul, I'm not going to go. If we are going to abound in the work of the Lord, we need to work with God's people with that kind of respect, that kind of grace, that kind of maturity, that kind of unity. To be able to work with each other without fear. We need to understand that sometimes the ideal opportunity to do that work of the Lord, sometimes it involves opposition. We need to make allowance for that. We need to make our plans to do that work of the Lord, knowing that it's God who is ultimately in control of all things. As I went through these verses, the thought that kept coming to mind that these verses at first glance that it seemed to be trivial, petty, unimportant. As you see all of the principles in here that we can learn. That all scripture is inspired by God. Even the closing chapters of letters. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that's what we have here in chapter 16.